My name is Leland Elias, and Carol and I have been attending this church for about six years, and we just love being here. And uh, I'm so glad that all of you are here this morning, and I have been asked if I would uh, bring a message occasionally to this congregation, and I have to say it's the most challenging uh, assignment that I have had in preaching because this is my home church, and if you mess up in your home church, then you don't want to come back because you're uh, fearful. So I'm uh, preaching for my life here, uh, I want you to know, and so please be kind to this old man, if you can. We live in a time when uh, we're hearing a lot about a fact-free zone for the election, right? I mean, I have been hearing this for weeks and even months now, that fact-checkers are running out of time and space to check on all of the things that could be wrong with what anybody says on television. Well, last week I listened to the findings of a focus group made up of uh, millennial moms in Ohio. And one of the moms declared with some real frustration, this election has morphed into an alternative universe where facts don't matter. I thought she said it pretty well. And this issue is not new. For hundreds of years, governments have discovered the power of disinformation that uh, people are willing to believe things that are not true, and if you can spread them just right, you can create a whole other narrative about what's going on in a country or a land. In that regard, some of you may know the name Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He uh, passed away in 2003 and served uh, four terms as a senator in the United States. He was an ambassador, he was on the administration, and he was a teacher. And Patrick uh, Moynihan, had this statement. Uh, there's a picture of him. He said, everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not his own facts. There's something really good about that quote, I think, because we know that facts matter in just about all areas of life. Pilots fly by facts. You just heard about uh, a vice presidential candidate whose plane uh, ran amok in uh, New York City because they think that the pilot landed the plane too fast in the middle of what was already a relatively short runway. Airspeed and lengths of runways matter to pilots. Accountants say about numbers, are these facts true? Human resources look at resumes and say, I wonder how factual this is. And courts of law says, if you're going to make up a theory about how this happened, you better back it up with evidence, meaning facts. So when truth doesn't matter, uh, well, let's go back one sentence here. When facts don't matter, then truth doesn't matter. And when truth doesn't matter, the fabric of society begins to fall apart. Tom Brokaw said recently, People don't know what's true. They feel unhinged. I think that's true, isn't it? Don't you find the, the wave of fact-free thinking discouraging and disturbing? So the question that I want to raise with you this morning is what kind of Christians provide the best examples of how to live well in a fact-free world? in a culture that feels 
unhinged from reality. Well, one of my favorite pictures in these last uh, weeks is this one. You know that the, uh, uh, that the dinner that's held annually in, uh, in, in New York City is in honor of uh, Al Smith, who was the first Catholic nominee for president. And at this gathering, uh, Cardinal uh, sat between the two candidates. And there are several reasons why I like this picture. I, I like it, first of all, because he looks like he's enjoying himself. And, and I think if we're going to be Im Im uh, impactful when we share our faith, it's best if we're joyful people, right? And when he got up to speak, he said, I think I have just spent two hours in the iciest seat in North America. <laughs> then he told some folks afterwards that before these three came out and sat together, he had prayer with them. He said, let's have a prayer for God's blessing on this evening. Now, the gathering raised $6 million for a charity, a record amount of money, and so in that sense, they experienced God's blessing. And uh, I, I look at that picture, and I say to myself, that kind of pictures the kind of person I want to be. I like to be a Christian in the mess of society. I would like to be a joyful Christian in the midst of all of those kinds of things. I would like to be bold in my faith and say, let's pray about this. I would like to be a person that is attractive in shaping a different kind of world because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'd like to look with you this morning at a passage of scripture that raises the issue of whether facts matter in our faith. The setting for the story is uh, the city of Antioch, and if the map is up, you'll see uh, that the arrow that I had pointing to Antioch is not on this map. <laughs> A prize for any of you who can find it. But if you go to the upper right-hand hinge of the Mediterranean Sea, and you see that squiggly long line, this is uh, one of Paul's missionary journeys, you'll see that it ends in a city called Antioch. It's Antioch of Syria, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem and about 80 miles inland. Now, this was one of the most beautiful cities of the ancient Near East. I've got another picture of here uh, uh, that I want you to see, and, and that is these colonnades now, if you imagine that that's about 30 feet across, and if you imagine that this is two miles long, and that it's paved with marble, you'll have an idea of why it is called the Rome of the East. From the time of Caesar Augustus, the emperors of Rome decided to make this place beautiful, and they did. It was absolutely amazing. They uh, funded public baths, a great basilica, theaters, aqueducts, uh, and people came there uh, by the thousands. It, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. About 500,000 people lived there. And Acts tells us that, Christ, yeah, 
that, that followers of Jesus Christ were first called Christians in Antioch. It was a multicultural setting with a large Jewish population, and uh, the scene in this setting, imagine off of one of these colonnades a large home, a home large enough to house uh, a gathering of many dozens of people. Uh, the passage from Galatians doesn't tell us how many were there, but it says there were a gathering, and they were gathering around a uh, fellowship meal. Now, fellowship meals in the ancient world were quite different than our fast food menu where we go to Arby's or McDonald's or whatever your favorite fast food place might be, where the, there is one intention, and that is to get enough food to satisfy the hunger and get on. The fewer people you talk to because you're in a hurry, the better. Well, that was not the culture that we're talking about. The, the fellowship meals were extended periods of time, and for Christians, they were climaxed with a celebration of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, and they were focused heavily on the, the amazing fact that Jesus Christ had come into this world and that he had taught as nobody else had taught, and he did miracles as no one else had seen, and that when they put him to death, on the third day he rose again and appeared to hundreds of people, 500 in one time, says the Corinthians, and, and that then he was ascended to the Father as a demonstration that God had accepted the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of humankind, and Jesus came saying, I came to seek and to save the lost. And so this is at the very beginning of the early church, where the explosive power of the presence of Christ was infecting all of the conversations that were going on, and followers of Jesus were gathering to celebrate this amazing truth and following his instruction to uh, break the bread and drink the cup and do that in remembrance of Christ. Well, at this gathering, at this home, in this amazing city, were some of the strongest leaders of the early church. Barnabas was there. He was always encouraging someone. And he was the one who brought, found Paul and brought him to Antioch to be a teacher in that setting. And Paul was there, and Peter was there. So arguably, the most influential leaders of the early church were gathered together, and uh, they were eating the Lord's table, which was a celebration of the inclusive nature of the gospel, that you didn't have to be a Jewish person to partake, and Jews and Gentiles ate together. This was all really important, and uh, they were celebrating this amazing uh, truth. Now, Peter had experienced the story that's found in Acts 10. And it is that he was praying, and a vision from heaven came down with a bunch of animals, and a voice spoke to him, saying, Eat of these. And Peter said, Not so. They, many of them are unclean, and I will not do that. And then the voice said, What I have called clean, don't you call unclean. And right then comes Cornelius with his troop and saying he's, God, he's a God-fearer and hears that Peter is there and he wants to know about Christ. And so while Peter is teaching, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And Peter is astonished 
because the Holy Spirit came upon people who weren't following dietary laws. They didn't follow the law to be circumcised. Uh, and, and so he just was amazed and said, it's very clear that God is no respecter of anybody. So that was the truth that Peter had learned. Paul, a latecomer to the scene, had that amazing conversion experience on the road to Damascus where he discovered the Lord Jesus Christ in person and in the process of that learned that he had been 180 degrees in the wrong direction for the will of God and the purpose of Christ and he was totally transformed and so he went back to Jerusalem to meet with Peter, James, and John, to confirm with them, he said, to make sure that my gospel was in line with this gospel that was being preached by the people in Jerusalem so that he would not preach in vain. And they verified that everything that Paul was preaching was true. The facts of the gospel had been established saying that Salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ, not of works, not obeying any religious rules of dietary laws or even circumcision. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, said the preachers of the early church. And so it's into that scene that we have this story in Galatians, and I'd like you to look at it with me now. Peter came to Antioch. Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, let me just pause here and say the issue was really not about hospitality. It wasn't the kind of food that was being served. It was the meaning of the fellowship. And when Peter left the Gentiles to go and sit with the Jewish folks out of fear of what they would think of him, he was making a theological statement. He was saying, if you really want to be a full-blown Christian, you must not only believe in God and Jesus Christ, you must also obey all of these rules. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? What Paul was doing, I mean, imagine this scene. This is before the Council of Acts 15 where they hammered out what does it mean to have Jewish and Gentile Christians worshiping together. In, in the fledgling early church, Paul heard and saw what, he, what was going on and he said, this is really dangerous. This is a hinge in the early church. Paul was saying, if we don't get it straight about what the gospel is, 
then we're going to be wrong, wrong, wrong. And so he took the risk of confronting Peter in front of all of these people to say what he, what he thought. And what, what Paul had gone through, you see, was to hear the Lord say to him, you know what, what's saving you is not your ethnic background. He was an Israelite. It's not that you were of the tribe of Benjamin, the, the most treasured tribe. It's not because you're a Pharisee, zealous for the law. It's not because in obedience to the law, you were faultless. The only way, Paul, that you can have salvation is by trusting in me as your Savior. And Paul knew that right there at this point in the early church, a decision was going to make about what is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's the hinge that has been impacting humanity for centuries. Because in most religions, you have a theory that says God grades us on the basis of our good deeds. And uh, if your deeds aren't good enough, you're not going to make it to heaven. When Muhammad Ali died and his wife was talking about him, she talked about his good deeds. And she said he believed that every good deed that he would do would help him get to paradise. That's the hinge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says if you want to be a member of God's family, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the grace of and the mercy of God, he will receive you into his family. So, Paul writes further in Galatians about these things that happen when you believe in Jesus Christ. This is what is at stake. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put, delete an S on that uh, word there, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So number one, by believing in Christ, we're justified. The next passage, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to continue by human effort? Because you are God's sons and daughters, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. We receive the Spirit by faith. Number three, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So Paul was arguing in favor of the three major results, the essentials of Christianity that come by faith. Number one, justification by Christ's death and resurrection so that all condemnation is removed. Intimacy with God. God's spirit dwells within and bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And freedom, freedom from misguided rules so that we can embrace all that God has created and called us to become. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is this huge mountain 
of God's loving kindness towards us. He sent Jesus into the world so that all of our sins and failures could be dealt with on the cross. And he sent the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we would have intimacy with him that hadn't been true in all the previous times of the children of Israel in the same way. And he said, I want you to be free from bondage. I don't want you to live with guilt. I don't want you to live with fear. I want you to live with a sense that you belong to God and that the most important single thing in your life is what does God want from me now? What kind of person does he want me to be? Where does he want me to go? And how shall I conduct myself when I get there? All of that is a part of the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, next year will be the 500th year anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church wall in Wittenberg. And he risks his life to reclaim the truth that salvation is a gift given by God. It's not something you can buy, which was going on in his day. People were buying indulgences so that their dead relatives' spirits could be released from purgatory. And Martin Luther risked his life when he stood up and said, that is not the truth. Salvation is a gift by faith. It's faith alone and by grace alone. So it's been quite a few years now since I was reading in the library Martin Luther's commentary in the book of Romans. And he was describing the experience of knowing how we please God and that it's by faith and grace. And as I was reading, this impression came over me that said, this same grace that liberated Martin Luther is for you, meaning me. And it covers all of your sins. There is no condemnation to you because of Christ Jesus, said the message. And you don't have to earn God's love. He loves you totally now as you are. And he loves you too much to leave you that way so that you'll keep growing to become the person you've been called to be. And you are my child, said the message to me. And it was like I had a long bath in a big tub filled with the grace of God. And as I was reading, the page became blurry because tears were flowing. And the distance from my brain to my heart had been traversed by a message about God's grace. Now, I have never gotten over that experience. It changed my life then, and it continues to change my life now. So let me pause just for a moment and say, if you are a conscientious Christian, you may be easily caught up in believing in your heart, even if you don't believe it in your head, that God will love you less if you fail to perform on this rule 
than if you do. I still remember the first time I preached a sermon on tithing. It was really scary. I said, you know, God doesn't love you any less if you don't tithe than if you do. I, like, I felt like I was throwing away one of the biggest levers I had to get people to give to the church because God will love you more if you tithe. But that's, there's no gospel in that. This experience with God that frees you from shame and guilt and fear is right at the heart of what we're talking about today. It is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that is the power of God unto salvation. And if you and I are going to live well in an unhinged world, the truth, the facts of the gospel need to grip us and change us and uphold us and be the, the, the foundation in which we live and move. And you will find, as I have found, that there are an amazing number of people who believe in the mercy of God and the love of God. I was riding in a, in a bus from an outskirts of Pittsburgh down to have dinner where the Three River Restaurant is, high above the rivers, a beautiful place. And sitting next to me was a Franciscan priest. We were attending a meeting of the Association of Theological Schools, which is an umbrella organization over Catholic, mainline Protestant, evangelical seminaries. And I had learned that he had been a pastor of a parish in the Appalachian Mountains in a small town there. So I turned to him and said, tell me what the most meaningful experience of your ministry was in that town. He said, well, it happened at Christmas time. We were uh, planning to go caroling, and the people asked me, would you go with us as we carol? He said, I will. And when they gathered at the church that night uh, to go and sing to the people of the town, uh, one of them said, which direction shall we go? He said, let's go this way. And, and the person said, oh, we can't go there. That's where the Protestants are. And he said, well, if we don't go and sing to the Protestants, I'm not going with you. And so they went, and they began to sing to the families of the wrong church from their point of view, in this little town. They came to this one house where the lights were on. Uh, it didn't seem like anybody was there because they sang for quite a while before a man came to the door wearing a robe and slippers, and he walked unsteadily over to the rail next to uh, the, the porch that he was on. And he listened as they sang, and when there was a pause, they introduced themselves to each other. And he said, uh, when it was his turn, well, I'm the pastor of the church down here, and I'm dressed the way I am because I've been in bed. Uh, the doctor tells me I have terminal cancer, and uh, you have no idea what it means to me that you're here singing these Christmas carols. And the Franciscan said to him, I'm going to pray for you in our morning prayers this coming Sunday which he did. He told his parish what they had experienced, and he prayed for the healing of this pastor. Weeks passed, and then the Franciscan heard the report. The pastor had gone back to his doctor, and the doctor said to him, 
I can find no trace of cancer in your body. And the pastor of the Protestant church said to the Franciscan priest, you know that Sunday morning you said you were praying for me? I felt something strange going on in my body. I didn't know what it was. But I can't thank you enough for your prayers on my behalf. And they became close friends. And from then on, those two churches did things together for the cause of their community in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, when I, when I think of that story, I think of the fact that a whole lot of the rules that I grew up with in the little fundamentalist Baptist church up in Canada were not rooted in the gospel. I mean, the rules that I learned to live by was don't drink, don't smoke, don't play cards, don't dance, and by all means, don't go to movies because Jesus might come back right when you're in the theater, and wouldn't that be a mess? Later, a friend said to me, you know, by that definition of being a Christian, my dog is a pretty good Christian. <laughs> Most of the rules, or many of the rules, that separate and divide the body of Christ are not centered in the gospel, are they? They're behaviors by which we can judge each other. And in my black and white thinking and my junior high years, I had no doubt about who was Christian and who wasn't in our community. I mean, the Lutherans in our community, they all did those five things. What more evidence do you need, I thought in my weak mind at the time, about who's a believer and who isn't? So one day, Jesus was uh, confronted by his disciples, and one of them said, uh, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. And Jesus said, Do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. So much of my Christian life has been revolving around what divides the body of Christ. And verses like this are kind of overlooked, where Jesus says, don't stop him. If he's for me, let it be. So part of facts about the gospel are whoever believes in Jesus, whoever trusts in Christ for his or her salvation, that person is a child of God. And if we can unite with that dimension, and I learned this on the mission field when we were out there, because when you're part of 6% of the population that's Christian and everybody else is not, Christians of all stripes get together because they know that what unites them is far greater than what divides them. So stay centered in the facts of the gospel and the incredible power of the grace of God. That's the message of this text from Galatians. And intimately fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And boldly live out your freedom with joy because you belong to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, you belong to God. 
And if you belong to Christ and God and the Holy Spirit dwells within you, then you are a part of his church. And his church is really big. And we ought to find every follower of Christ in this country right now and join hands and arms with them to lift up the name of Jesus as the hope of the world and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. And if we do that, we will find meaning and blessing and purpose and joy for the sake of Christ and our own, our own sake as well, right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for hope. Thank you for being our rock and our foundation, our fortress, our defense, our hope. Seal in our hearts those convictions based upon the facts of the gospel and make us a blessing to others, I pray, through Christ. Amen.